Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This is both a YouTube um, conversation and also a podcast. So if you are on the podcast and listening and want to watch this conversation, you can go to go over to my YouTube channel, Press and Sprinkle. And if you are on YouTube and you want to just listen to it, you can go to my podcast, Theology in the Raw. So on the show today, I have my very good friend, Pastor John Tyson. John is the founding um, pastor and current lead pastor. I don't know his exact title, um, but he leads a church of the city in New York City, uh, lives right smack dab in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. John is one of the most widely read, thoughtful pastors I know who is also not just thoughtful, not just a an avid reader and thinker, but the dude is spiritually in tune with Jesus in ways that few people are, as you'll see in this podcast uh, conversation. I mean, he's just a, he's, he's really one of a kind. So if you're not familiar with John's ministry, his work, then I highly encourage you to start following him. I mean, on social media or especially his, his sermons um, that he preaches at his church are among the best sermons, honestly. yeah, among the best preachers in America, I believe. So um, this is the second time back on the podcast, and we have a great time talking about kind of looking back on 2020 and how should Christians think through this disaster of a year in many ways. And yeah, as John says, there's a lot of good things that have come about uh, from it. And how should we look forward? Uh, how should we think about the political tensions and racial tensions and and COVID and post-COVID and all this stuff? And he's just a, a gifted uh, thinker and has a prophetic ability to cut through all the garbage and, and help guide the church in really, really significant ways. So I'm so thankful to have John on the show. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology Raw. All the info is in the show notes. You can check that out below. Without further ado, let's welcome back to the show for the second time, the one and only John Tyson. John Tyson, welcome back to Theology in the Raw. I think this is your second time, maybe third. It should have been it's your my tenth. Second time. Second time. Nah, <laughs> it's a joy to be back with you, mate. I love this podcast. Oh, and I, it's uh, you're one of those people who I resonate with at a profound level. I feel yeah. like there's a lot of theological alignment, so it's a joy to jump on and, and chat well, again in vice, 2021. Oh man, vice versa. I honestly, one of my I don't know if I actually told you this. One of one of my highlights in my 20 years of ministry was that insane um Sunday uh preaching at your church five times being rushed around um <laughs> New York City. I just read Catcher in the Rye recently and I felt like uh now looking back I felt like holding uh Caulfield uh being rushed around New York City, but that that was I mean exhausting, but there was so much joy and energy and that was just it was a highlight man i mean who gets to preach in five different services in manhattan that's pretty you do that every week though well you haven't done that in a while but no that was great and and that talk was a a powerful talk i tell people i saw another friend of mine reading catcher in the rye recently on new year's eve Mm. and i said it makes all the difference in the world if you've been in manhattan yeah when you read that book and you've been in Manhattan, it makes total sense. And when you don't, yeah. you get it, obviously, 
but it's uh, the the context and the nuance is very very yeah. pronounced yeah so it's so funny i get I, it. I i somehow missed that book in my life i i, I didn't i just knew it was a famous book I had no clue what it was about so I, I had no clue that it was about in in New York and all that. Like I, it, it took me a while to get into it because I was like, "What is this? This is such a odd." Yeah. I, I just read To Kill a Mockingbird, so I was expecting something similar to that. It was just, I mean, completely different. But um, yeah, it was great. I felt great like book. after when I, when I read Blue Like Jazz, I felt like Donald Miller got his writing style from Catcher in the Rye. Oh, I was like, I'd read Blue Like Jazz and his sentence structure, and I was yeah. like, "Gosh, this feels very very similar to." Catching yeah. the ride, but then you know he's obviously developed since then, and yeah. Donald Miller's like a master of communication. I can't believe he's selling, helping oh Toyota sell cars to millennials. Like I never saw that <laughs> coming, but he's yeah. a masterful communicator. He's a master. He really so anyway, is. Yeah. yeah. So New York City, tell it. Give us um, uh, <laughs> New York City's been on the news a lot this last year. Um, what what? How how would you if I was an alien that landed on planet Earth? right now how would you describe living in and being a pastor in new york city during covid and 2020 and riots and all this stuff and i maybe i don't know um yeah oh man i mean gosh i mean there's there's certainly an arc and and basically a wave of emotions you know and so i, I think the city has processed those like the initial anxiety and trauma the you know the adrenaline rush to scramble to figure out how to response the attempts at stabilization and care followed by disillusionment and hopelessness hmm. and then followed by what i would describe as like i don't think it's fully back yet but like a resolve to rebuild i don't think it's sort of back yet collectively someone sent me an article this morning that basically said uh well, one of my friends who works in finance and basically like researches the economy for a living, he said uh, 44% of the people who make the money that pay the taxes in New York City are probably not going to be contributing to the city's taxes anymore because there's two loopholes in New Jersey and Connecticut that the states are trying to push through. So it all just feels very apocalyptic uh, yet again. Wow. So at first, at first, mate um, – it was it was dystopia. It was I am legend. It was I am legend. <laughs> on e yes, on Easter last year, I went to Times Square to pray, um, and I was the only person in Times Square. Oh and by God. that I mean I was the only visible human in my field of view. That's eerie. And so I'm in the yes. It was it was so crazy in the middle of one of the busiest places on earth, and it was like nobody else is here. And this wasn't like at four a.m. It was about quarter to nine. Wow, that's so. Insane. There was just this, this, yeah, this heavy sense. You know, it's it's, and because we were just experiencing the shock of it, yeah, sort of the the overwhelming, the uncertainty about the virus, all those sorts of things. Now it's very, very different. I mean, it's 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 almost like when Black Lives Matter uh, and George Floyd died, the shared cultural experience was huge. But there was an African – there was actually two black men killed in Columbus, Ohio, and it did almost nothing. No national news. One of them was even worse. A guy was in his garage, and the police show up and shoot him when he's a guest at the home. Wow. And um, he's holding his cell phone. And I just thought, oh, the whole country is going to explode. But they're just – you know, it was the election. We didn't have the shared psychological state. So 
it was a once in a generation shared experience that was sort of level 10 intense for everybody. And now I don't know if our society can hold that same level of anxious tension anymore. So anyway, that's about, yeah, that's a, that's a big statement. For a period of time, the hardest thing for people not living there, like people not living in Portland or Seattle or whatever, like, you know, you see stuff on the news and as, as you know, depending on which news outlet you're looking at, you're going to get a very different portrait of what's going on. But there were some versions of the media portrayal of New York that it was like violence just running all over the place. Like it's back to where it was back in the seventies. Kind of like, you know, if you've seen the movie Joker, you know, like just (laughs) bonfires everywhere. Like what, what was it when there was not, that was not, that was not an accurate representation of the whole city. Okay. There was certainly, there was certainly pockets and parts of the city. Um, I tell, I tell you, um, before the elections, they boarded up Fifth Avenue in case Trump was elected. And that felt wow. way worse than the actual Black Lives Matter riots. Now, there were some parts of the city that got hit really hard. There was like massive rioting, mm-hmm. but it didn't represent the city as a whole. Even in the middle of the protests okay. um, back in the summer, where basically everywhere you went, there was protests. Really? I mean, there was, yeah, you, you're in a park and there's a protest in a park. You're in Times Square, there's a protest. Everywhere, there was just a whole city was an activist city. Um, that, that, when the riots happened, it didn't feel like, and I'm talking primarily about the ones connected to Wisconsin. It oh, yeah. didn't feel, it didn't feel the same as the summer. Okay. It was those pockets. It felt, the summer felt like, America reckoning with a history of racial injustice. Yeah, the summer, um, the summer did not feel like that at all. I'm uh, sorry, the latest ones did not feel like that at all. The latest ones felt more like a protest, whereas the ones in the summer felt more like riots that could really get out of control. I mean, it's- no, 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 no. The opposite. The ones oh, in the oh. summer felt. Yeah, the ones in the summer felt like a lot of people were kind of having a narrative shift. Okay. And it was like, gosh, America's not all it's cracked up to be. Like, wow, I'm really seeing long-term consequences of injustice in this nation, maybe for the first time. Okay. And it just felt like there was a sense of grief, a cry for justice. These other ones sort of felt like Antifa showed up to sort of disrupt and cause uh-huh. problems. And uh, so that felt very, very psychologically different. But it wasn't it wasn't the Joker. I mean, okay. totally, there was parts, little, there was little right. pockets like that. that but you, didn't you, you didn't, as a whole. you, you can go outside your place, go yeah, totally. shopping and know where to go. And it was, it wasn't like your life was completely turned inside and out specifically with the threat of danger or violence in the streets. No, no, okay. No. Yeah. No, not where we were. No. Okay. Cause you're right. I mean, you're right in the heart. You're a block away from Times Square. It's not like you're like, you know, up in yeah, and but the the thing that comes with that is like a disproportionate police presence. Oh. So you know, underneath Times Square, I've never been under there to like you know where the police headquarters are. But okay. people tell me this. They said that's where the SWAT teams are and all of that. I mean, uh, they okay. their ability to respond to violence is probably okay. thirty seconds. Yeah, in that place. So yeah, in some places it's a higher target. It's more symbolic. In other places, in in other senses, it's it's probably one of the safest places too. Yeah. Okay. How did your church do with all the political tension? I mean, racial tension, everything where, um, where, where would, I mean, it's probably hard to even tell maybe because of COVID, but 
I talked to a lot of pastors and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I've got people in my congregation all across the spectrum. People who think wearing, you know, the mask is the sign of, of the beast, all the way people saying, you know, um, if, if you don't wear a mask, you're the most immoral person on, on earth and everything in between, you know, Trump's the Antichrist, Trump's the Messiah. And he's like, I, I didn't know I had this in my congregation. It kind of came out and I don't know what to do with it. What was, anyway, that, that's how a lot of pastors have described this to me. What was your experience like pastoring people through COVID and all the upheaval? Um, so that is not my experience, Pastor Ollie, whatsoever. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm in a super liberal city. Yeah. 87% of Manhattan voted for Biden. Okay. Um, I, I'm thinking back to the hundreds and hundreds of comments I've received, and only one of them has been against masks. Okay. My feedback, my feedback is 99.9%. Why aren't we wearing more masks and staying more okay. socially distanced? Okay. So, yeah, I've got friends who were like on the other. Yeah, I, I think part of it's too. I had COVID. My wife had COVID. My kids had COVID. Right. So for us, it's like we were really, really sick. And so for me, it's not I'm not like faith over fear. I'm like, you don't say that, you know, like you don't say that about cancer. You don't say that about the common cold. You don't say that if you break your arm. You don't. So, huh. you know, to me, it was like, I mean, it. COVID's bad. I've had t two friends recently got it. One of them got very sick. Hmm. So, you know, my friend Darren, Darren Whitehead passed from Nashville. He got COVID at Thanksgiving and he was sick. So I didn't definitely feel that. Now, I, I'm very sympathetic hmm. as, you know, basically a libertarian. I'm very sympathetic about government overreach. Yeah. And I'm, um, I don't believe in conspiracies, I say, but I do believe in shock doctrine. And what I mean by that is that all politicians and all people with power have agendas and they wait for cultural people to implement the agenda. Yeah. That's not even that's not even controversial. I mean, that is that's reality. Well, that is controversial, so, I mean, they, but I would say it's true. Can you unpack that a little more? Can you restate what you said? Because that I know it just rolled off your tongue, but that's actually a pretty brilliant statement. And there's a lot there. Uh, back up a few seconds and repeat what you said and. For the person who said, whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa, so, whoa. Well, I, I, I think a conspiracy would go more along these lines. Let's introduce a crisis to achieve a particular end. So let's manufacture uh, COVID-19 and consciously release it on our own people in order to take away the rights of people and, and introduce surveillance technologies. I don't believe that. Um, what I do believe is that all people with power have an agenda. That's not controversial. I mean, it's not controversial. People with power have agendas is not a controversial statement. Each politician got up the front and said, put me in power and here's my, here's my policies. Mm -hmm. Here's my agenda for the nation. So it shouldn't be controversial. I understand why it may be. Um, a step further than that is basically I believe that there's people who are crisis opportunists, mm -hmm. which means when a crisis happens, they take advantage of it and they may have shelved goals that they activate in a time of crisis to accelerate their agenda. I think that's yeah. very, very true. Yeah. So the difference is one introduces the crisis to manipulate. The other mm -hmm. one takes advantage of the crisis to manipulate. I don't believe in the first one. Um, I believe in the second one. But that being said, Christians, I mean, you know, we believe 
uh, we're not dealing, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. I mean, my devos this morning, and Ephesians 6. Mm. We're talking about schemes of the enemy. We're talking about uh, a satanic agenda for the world. And sometimes that does map onto human systems and therefore manifests itself through things like government, media, those sorts of things. So, but that's, you know, who can discern that? Mm-hmm. Well, I would just say this, certainly not the people um, mm-hmm. in the Western church right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem so. doesn't yeah. seem like discernment. You know, I'm from the Pentecostal tradition, and it seems like discernment is the one gift of the Spirit that we need a fresh <laughs> activation of, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, just to transition a little bit, but not, not really. I mean, you kind of led us here. I mean, as we... So we're recording this, what is it, January 5th um, right now. This will be released in the next month or so. Um, As Christians look back on 2020, this infamous year, um, how should we reflect on 2020 from a spiritual perspective? What should we learn and how should we move forward in light of going through 2020? I mean, that's, that's one way to kind of frame my question, but I think you know what I'm yeah. 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 I mean, there's probably so many, so many lessons we could learn. There's going to be every person's going to have individual um, heart lessons. Each family is going to have family dynamic lessons. Each church is going to have, you know, community and leadership lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, each city and region is going to have its own. Uh, and, and so, you know, what, uh, let me just unpack it maybe in those categories even. Yeah. What did I learn personally? You know, in many ways, 2020 was a very good year for me. It was a very good year internally. It was a very bad year externally. Mm. Internally, um, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I felt God say something to me that's really hard to articulate in a way that makes sense. But here's what it was. I felt God say to me, enjoy me. Wow. Enjoy me. It's a, it's a derivative of John 15 on abiding. But I just felt God say to me early on, I want you to enjoy my presence. I want you to enjoy that the deepest longings of your heart have been fulfilled. I want you to enjoy that the ultimate questions of reality have been sorted out. Enjoy the inner witness of the Spirit. Enjoy fellowship with Christ. Enjoy the Father's love. Enjoy my word. And so I spent time every morning really sitting in that. And so I tried to push off any external issues and pressure and not a, not let them get into the inner chamber of my heart. Mm. So I try to have like a, 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 citad, a citadel of joy in the inner man and like really tend to it. Mm. And so that that's one thing I was very, very vigilant along. So, I, so my sense of intimacy, friendship with God over the course of 2020 was very, very rich. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, real quick, can I, I can I, I, I would love like tangibly, what did that look like? I mean, more time in the word, more time in prayer, or just more meaningful, like it just more depth yeah, in what, what it, you were already doing or what, what did you, cause so I, can, I, can, so, I can imagine some people saying, I want that. How do I do that? Pastor me, pastor. Yeah, Tyson. man. I mean, it's uh, so part of it is an attitude. So my default mode, for example, when it comes to prayer, like is intercession, it's contending. It's like declaring it's like it's all that stuff you know it's sort of like warrior metaphors for prayer wrestling with prayer that those sorts of things um my whole posture just changed to prayers like 
God, I'm just powerless. Mm. I, I can do nothing. I have no agency here. Mm. I just I just turn to you. I enjoy you. Thank you. Have mercy on me, God. I rely on your mercy. Prayers of surrender rather than strength. Uh, prayers of weakness. Mm. Um, prayers of gratitude. Um, way more meditation on scripture and praying it back slowly. You know, so like meditating through the Lord's prayer, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Wow, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who rules and determines the times and events of history, the one who's going to give me eternal life, the one who holds all things together. That person is shepherding me. Wow, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd. Wow, what does a shepherd do? Wow, the care, you know. So just slow, slow, enjoyable. So the way I would say um, you know, at, uh, at Bryant Park and in New York City, they have these Christmas um, markets and they're just selling everything. And there's this one famous stand that sells these um, French chocolates, the truffles. And the guy always says one thing, no chewing, let it melt on your tongue. And he always says, like, the French guy's like, let it melt on your tongue, no chewing, no chewing. And, uh, <laughs> and it's true when you, let, when you let the chocolate just melt on your tongue. So what I would say is, is like, you're not chewing the meat of the word. You're letting it melt into your inner being. I would let these words pierce me. Psalm 1 says that the blessed life is not the reader or even the doer of the word. It's the meditator on the word. Mm. And on his law, he meditates, meditates day and night. So it was a lot more quiet reflection, meditation on scripture. Um yeah, and, and then you know, devotional reading. You know, reading, reading. I, I mean, I did read some um, books, nowhere near as many as I wanted in 2020. Mm-hmm. I was sort of pastorally overwhelmed, but I just read classic books. Went back into a lot of A.W. Tozer, Pursuit of God, mm-hmm. like those sort of classic devotional books. I just read them very slowly. It's so good. So uh, just like a very slow sake, very slow pace of enjoying God. And I found that when I did that in the morning, I could honestly get through almost anything. Wow. I couldn't, it wouldn't yeah. last more than two days. Like <laughs> I, like I would be straight back at cultural level anxiety if I got away from it. But I would do that in the mornings. And then at night I would do a prayer of examine and just like take all the cares of the day and just say, God, I, I can't carry these. It's too much. Wow. So yeah, anyway, all that to say personally, I came out of the the year very, very spiritually healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, my family, my family's doing better than ever because we got to be together a bunch, and my kids handled it quite well, which I was which I was thrilled with. Um, our church, what did our church learn? Uh, you know, um, I think our church honestly learned how much privilege we have as a church. And what I, what I mean by that is like, you know, people had second houses to go to, they had places to get out. We raised a massive benevolence fund. Mm. And we're just not the kind of church where people utilize it in the ways that you would expect. Mm. So, yeah, we did pay some relocation costs, but most of where our money went went to mental health counseling for our people. It didn't oh. go for, I can't afford my rent, I can't afford my groceries. The vast majority of people in our church have access they have, they have, they have support systems mm-hmm. nothing if they have credit cards like even having a credit card we forget is a privilege to have a, like a bank entrust you with the ability to go into debt mm-hmm. so um yeah we learned i think you know how much we have there i mean we just wrapped up our budget our giving was up 26 percent officially largest giving in the history of our church um 
so that was interesting. I've actually heard that from several. I would say a much higher percentage of pastors have told me that their giving has gone up. If you count attendance on online has gone up like COVID, even though there's economic hardship slash collapse in some ways, they, some churches, at least the ones I've talked to, the majority didn't feel it the opposite. What, what, why is that? What? Well, to, so to me, we're still in, we're still for the most part in the heroic Christian response phase. Okay. We're not in the fatigue phase yet. <laughs> Okay. So Keller said it's the fatigue cycle is two years. So he saw all of the effects of, of 9-11's trauma two years on. Interesting. You know, so we're only 10 months in. So, you know, a, a year from now, a year and a half from now, that's when I think it'll really, you know, the true, it's like being in a fight and you get out of the fight, the adrenaline drops down, you don't know how hard you were hit. We okay. still got a lot of adrenaline. Okay. Interesting. Um. So, yeah. And, and God's people are generous. Yeah. The American church is generous. It's in a generous church. So um, I think our church learned that, you know, sort of our fundamentals are very, very strong, very strong prayer culture. So I think a lot of people learned that about their churches. I think a lot of pastors were like, I had some moments of complete and utter disillusionment. You know, I I view myself as a thoughtful, careful Bible teacher. And I was amazed at how some people just got sucked into total cultural lies. Really? Yeah. Like that, it shocked me. I was like, man, you've been sitting under this preaching. But then I felt better because the Paul founded New Testament churches and they got sucked into false teaching too. Yeah. So, you know, it's the nature of truth and deception, not the necessarily the quality of the leader. Can you identify a certain species of false teaching that you had to deal with? Oh, gosh. Oh, mate, look, I, don't, I, I mean, to get into it yeah. <laughs> is to unleash hell on your podcast. Oh, bring it on. So uh, <laughs> Too late. <laughs> very nuanced, man. I mean, um, you know, I mean, part of it's connected to critical theory, oh, right. not even critical race theory, critical theory as a discipline, hmm. which, which immediately I want to say 30 things about, which is the historical conditions in which it was created, the, the reason the worldview that school of thought even formed based on the cultural conditions of their day. Um, what I mean by that versus what other people, so like I've got a thousand disclaimers, but I just saw people become cynical and lose biblical hope. That's the root of it. And so people, people shifted from during COVID, the church is acting like the bride of Jesus and loving and serving in powerful ways to within two weeks, the church is the root of all evil in the world. Yeah, I watched that happen in some people's lives, and I was like, "What? What happened?" I understand uh, connected that connected to it. Um, can you share? A, can that, you share your thoughts on critical theory? I mean, I, I you're such a thoughtful guy. You're nuanced. You're. I haven't but, done this anywhere. I hesitate. I so I mean I I've 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 talked about it. I mean I, I'm I'm not I'm a learner. I mean I, I brought in a buddy of mine who did a PhD basically in critical theory ed Yuzinski. We, we had an hour and a half discussion and and he's very nuanced too he's kind of like most christian critics don't understand it um there's various strands that he thinks are really wrong-headed and destructive but there's also some things that are you know heading like like trying trying to go in the right direction but the whole postmodern kind of framework is is you know so he had a very 
nuanced um there is no such thing as critical theory as some monolithic you know <laughs> um thing to critique um yeah. anyway so, so I, I i have discussed it on the podcast a little bit i would love to hear your thinking out loud uh thoughts <laughs> well i mean the, the the i guess the strain i'm talking so two things i would say um the challenge for african-americans and critical race theory mm-hmm. is that anytime the black church has had a moment to contend for justice in the world, mm-hmm. the white church has lumped some kind of accusation against them to stop them being able to have a fair and honest discussion about wow. the state of things. Wow. So you go back in history, the ways many of the major denominations were formed, you look at Dr. King and his accusations of communism, you look at what's happening now with critical race theory, that the white church often tends I don't know its motives, but it often tends whenever there's a movement for justice to throw something out to stop the justice conversation happening so Mm. that real change and reckoning takes place. And I think for many African-Americans, all the stuff around critical theory is just the white church's next version of the same old stuff to not talk about the problems that we have. I think that is very, very real. And so, you know, some of my African-American friends are like, you know, a half of them are like, "What are you talking about, critical race theory? I'm talking about Amos. I'm talking about the prophets. I'm talking about Matthew 25. What are you, you know, why are you injecting that into it?" So I think that has, in many ways, become a red herring. And you know, I, I think I tweeted back a while ago. Um, you know, you, you can you can strain out critical theory and swallow and still swallow um, the gnat. You know, strain out the gnat of critical theory critical race theory and swallow um the camel of injustice mm. i mean like it, that that can happen yeah. and so um yeah that, so that's that's a thought but but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about sort of like the postmodern deconstruction dominant lens of the suspicion of power that in any environment says if you have power you're abusing or manipulating someone okay and the axis of reality that only says power and victim. And so it fails to take into account nuanced reality that forms situations mm-hmm. and then responds to them properly. And it does it without the lens of Christian love and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So that spirit gets in where you just walk in with sort of an, a hands-folded, cynical lens that becomes very self-righteous mm-hmm. that says we're on the side of the oppressed and you're just the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason that lens exists and it's called just take a quick look at human history. But to, to have that lens without an ethic of Jesus, to have that lens without forgiveness, to have that lens without a vision of enemy love, to have that lens without a vision of reconciliation. And I saw some people get swept up into okay. that version so quickly and you know as it's been written about i think you know maybe one of the the clearest books is cynical theories yeah but as it's been as it's been written about when young white people adopt that worldview (laughs) it often um comes with a level of um intensity that is not helpful that being said i think i understand why many of them adopt that worldview that's that's super helpful. So, so yes. you've read that book, Cynical Theories, by James yes. Lindsay and yeah. Helen Pluckrose. Yeah. Was it good? It was exceptional. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I mean, look, you know, again, my 
I mean, he's an atheist, so yeah. he's certainly not. Each, I'm looking at I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm trying to have a Jesus lens as right. a disciple of Jesus. How these things work out? He obviously doesn't have a Jesus lens. Yeah. So when he says when he, you know his basic summary is like critical theory is a helpful diagnostic and a terrible solution. So you know, like he would say that, and you go, I, I think there's definitely truth in that, but I can't live in a world where my option then is reject everything. Right. My, my I'm here to deal with sin. I'm here to deal with the consequences of sin. I'm here to to seek first the kingdom of God. I'm here about Jesus reconciling mission. So you know, like the classic response of like, therefore I just dust my hands off and look for a political solution, a solution like classical liberalism, mm -hmm. and that's enough for me. I'm not here thinking the solution to postmodernism and critical theory is classical liberalism, mm -hmm. though that is probably you know obviously the form of government that I think is you know is the best. Um, I'm here for the kingdom of God. Yeah, so I've got yeah. another whole set of a, a different agenda mm -hmm. um, that that is brought to this discussion that, that mediates and moderates the entire discussion. Yeah. So but that being said, I watched people in a vulnerable moment latch onto it mm -hmm. because it was such an emotionally satisfying mm -hmm. view of the world when so much angst was available. That's that's such a helpful summary, man. Now yeah, I think yeah, that's that's about where I'm at. I think, and again, these are this is an area that I I do not claim any sort of expertise, but me me I I have a pastoral level, yeah. I have an above average reading level on it, but certainly yeah. nowhere close to an academic level. But I James Lindsay has been kind of my <clears throat> my I would say my go to critic. He's not my only voice, but his understanding is far exceeds most people who advocate for critical theory. They don't even understand. Yeah, I agree. Like he's, he's a, he's a, he's an academic. I yeah. mean, he knows what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good. Well, yeah, we, I, we've kind of a bit of a rabbit trail. So, um, so yeah, let's circle all the that way back. Fun. So yeah. So, so Christians looking back on 2020, what should we learn? You, you gave some personal stuff. C can you expand it a little bit? I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on, the future of the church post COVID we're not quite there yet, <laughs> but what, what, what should the church have? What should the church have learned going through what it did? And what are the things that we should keep? What are the things we should ditch? What are some things on the horizon that we should be pressing into as, as a big C church? I mean, I can't, I mean, all I can give you is sort of pastoral musings, you know, um, what we learned is that we're at a time of such decline in the Western church that even the greatest crisis of our lifetime cannot sustain an urgency around prayer. That, that is one thing we've learned. So at the start of COVID, everybody was like 24-7 prayer, pressing in, praying for, you know, now people are contemplating their mortality. This is a moment when the imminent frame is being shattered and, People are thinking about, you know, meta things again. Wow. And we just couldn't sustain that. So, like, we, you know, it's the first national crisis without explicitly religious framing. Wow. It was the, all of the debate was about science. And so there was no, why did God let this happen on Good Morning America? You think back to 9-11. Mm -hmm. Why did God let these attacks happen to America? And the classic things where you said you didn't want God, and so he's lifted his hedge of protection. 20 years later, 20 years later, none of that. It's all just about science and 
pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It's like politics. It's the solutions of man. It's the government of man. So we learned how profoundly secular our society has become hmm. in the midst of the greatest crisis. Um, yeah, the church couldn't sustain uh, us, couldn't sustain a movement of prayer in the midst of it, dependence of God in the midst of it. Um, I think we saw that the church is, is, that being said, is still a remarkably innovative, robust thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's amazing. I mean, I don't understand the algorithms of YouTube, um, but, you know, one thing I get fed up all the time is tiny, obscure churches whose online services have 13 views. And I, I poke around and just see, you know, what King's Anglican Church in the northeast of England is doing with their live online service for whatever reasons, the algorithms. Are, and I'm often amazed, not at how bad the quality is, because if you compare it to something like big major churches that have been doing on, you know, video production, whatever, I'm amazed at how a congregation of 75 year olds is still staying connected and streaming through Facebook. Hmm. Like the yeah. church has pivoted and is responding and is doing their bit, the best of them to the crisis. So I, I just think, you know, I'm, I'm tremendously hopeful that Jesus will build his church in, in any and all circumstances. And hmm. um, so that was, that was refreshing to see. Um, what will stay, what will go? Um, well, it depends on the lens that you view this. I'm not necessarily one of these people who's like, I'm suspicious of all online numbers, period, all the time, ever. Views mean nothing. <laughs> so they're not an indicator of discipleship. They're not an indicator of character. They're not an indicator of mission. They just mean for any given percentage that that was online, someone poked their head in. It's hard to, so it's hard to, of meaningful data in terms of discipleship from that. That being said, we will always have online church from now on, period, because some people are immunocompromised and this the new world we're living in is going to be very hard for them to ever return to fully normal. Um, I think some churches realize they have a larger uh, ministry or window. They're like they're, they're helping more than they're just local, their local church. So some people are going to organize secondary ministries um you know so so how did like charles how did in touch come to be how did chuck swindoll come to be well they realized hey there's something here that's better than it's more helpful than just for our local congregation Mm. i think quite a few churches have realized that so they'll develop secondary media ministries um that's probably a good thing to get god's word out in ways that people can access it Mm -hmm. um but it should not be people's normative experience. Mm-hmm. The church is an embodied thing. We're not Gnostics. Being physically present to one another matters. Receiving communion together matters. Watching people be baptized, you know, um, those things are, are embodied realities for the church. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm adding anything anything particularly insightful. That mentoring is great on Zoom, as it turns out. You know, and I think seminaries knew this. The cohort model where you come together for 10 days and then yep. you meet monthly online. I mean, that's, that's how I did um, my theological studies. That works pretty well for mentoring. Hmm. So I think there's a lot of um, leadership networks and environments with whom this is like, hey, this really works. And there's some other things where it just does not work. Small groups do not work well long-term over Zoom as hmm. a primary mechanism. You know, So day-to-day life requires presence and personhood and place. Um, but secondary kinds of environments, you know, they work online. Um, one thing that's interesting, our church did Alpha online. Evangelism online is going better than ever. Really? 
So, you know, people are taking those questions and, and searches online and the obstacles are gone. So we, our church has been a big Alpha church for many years. Alpha yeah. is an evangelistic Bible study for people who aren't familiar. Uh, it's basically the angle scale live is how I describe it. It's, it goes for, depending on how you configure it, between 10 or 12 weeks. And you just go from how can there even be a God to Jesus is Lord over the course of that time. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, it, but it relies heavily on creating a welcoming environment, hospitality, home cooked meals. Mm-hmm. Well, for a lot of people, that's still terrifying to show up. Mm-hmm. Now you just pop into a Zoom call and you can say what you want without any fear of repercussions, and you don't have to dress up and you can be socially awkward. Like there's no yeah. the social anxiety is taken out. So Alpha Online has gone very very well in our church. I think online search. Uh, online evangelism will remain from this and be very, very helpful. Same with apologetics. So I don't know. They're just a couple of initial observations. The yeah. church, the church needs to gather, and it's and so in some sense, like the church is not the building; it's not the Sunday service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. And legally, a marriage is not you sitting in a room with your spouse. I guess, <laughs> but for the dynamics of for yeah. the dynamics of a healthy marriage, you must be present with one another. Yeah. And so I, I think I think we're learning the value of gathering and some other side digital options as well. Yeah, the way I would put it is gathering is part of the DNA of what church is. You can't have church without some kind of gathering and Sunday morning service as it's traditionally performed in 2021 20, Western America. You know, that's one kind that's one way to gather. Um, but yeah, so so you, you could reframe the church service, whatever, as long as you're still gathering on some level, if you're not gathering and and is a zoom gathering, I think, yeah, I think that would qualify on some level, but like you said, that it is quite Gnostic in some ways. And yet, I don't know. I just thinking out loud that, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of in a post printing press shift in culture and just like the, 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 the world that came to be after the printing press was vastly different than prior to the printing press. So also with, you know, post online, post social media, post COVID even, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. Like is our online platforms, the new marketplace where, where the gospel needs to go, you know, um, or is it, or is it, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, in my lenses maybe it's like primary and secondary yeah you know like the the primary lens should be an an embodied lens of relationships where you are known loved held accountable under spiritual authority somewhere Mm. now we're getting into like what is a church but i think like there's some fundamental things that need to be in place Mm -hmm. in order for you to be in healthy functional biblical church Uh, but there's all sorts of secondary means supplemental means and powerfully supplemental means mm-hmm. that are very, very helpful. So as I say all the time, you know, people say, what do you think of video venues? I'm like, I, I don't think Paul would do video venues for church, but he would absolutely use them for apostolic ministry. Mm. So would Paul send in a message every two or three months to a congregation he was like overseeing for? Absolutely. Would that be completely valid? Yes, it would. But that's different as a secondary medium than, mm. you know, you have no primary gathering, you know, pastor yeah. preaching, leading those. But he, he, that's another. Again, he wouldn't, just, if he was pastor in a local church, he wouldn't make the video sermon like the kind of DNA of the gathering. But like you said, as a secondary, yes. that's helpful. Yeah. 
he'd, he'd Skype back into the Antioch church, give updates from Philippi and, you know, no, totally. 100%. Yes. Send, send a kick, and, you know, s- and, video um, to Corinth and tell them to get their act together. I'm, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. You better get your stuff together. That could have happened on Zoom, maybe. <laughs> you know, uh, Acts 15 could have been on Zoom, or, or there could have been people Zooming in. You know, there could have been people who couldn't make it that still contributed. So mm. I'm not a ladder by any means. I love technology. I think it should be, um, it should be discerningly used and leveraged. Mm-hmm. But um, we have to always be aware of the unintended consequences. And so often, if you're a trend chaser, you don't even bother talking about those things. It's all upside, no downside. And so I want to, yeah, you know, leverage the upside and minimize the downside. You think after the vaccine does its thing, maybe by summertime when the majority have been vaccinated, that things will go back to largely normal or, or not? Because you kind of reference like there might be a two year from now kind of like fatigue, um, you know, descending you know, upon so- the church. So I tell you, I tell you something interesting, it's, which is has huge ramifications for the whole of American life. So I we did this game in every environment that I am in called Take It or Leave It. A very simple game. What would you leave in 2020, and what would you take from it? You know, yeah. basically, what was the good, what's the bad? What do you want to be in 2021? And every single person, without fail, 100 out of 100, very small sample size, but very consistent, said my pace of life was off and the new pace of life has been a gift to me. Hmm. Better relationships with my spouse, better relationships with my kids, way, way healthier. Uh um, And Uh I've got to figure out how to maintain this and not go back to the craziness. Every single person said that. So um, I think one of the, will we go back to normal? If by that you mean, will will, uh, 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 in-person events happen? Will we be in restaurants again? And wearing masks seemed like a bad dream. Yeah, that was slowly resumed to normal. But I think, again, I, I saw another article as Wall Street Journal. So, you know, depending on how you view it, a credible source, but certainly a legitimate source of some kind yeah. said in Midtown, 90% of the skyscrapers are still empty, meaning 90% of the workforce is not back in the workplace. And so, um, hmm. A lot of folks are finding that they can do something on Zoom and it's or some sort of split, two days, five days, three days, four days, whatever. Mm-hmm. I definitely see that being a permanent feature of American life. So I think, yeah, we'll go back. Of course we will. Life will resume in some capacity. But I think definitely the way we think about work and pace will yeah. change for a lot of people and we'll sustain that as long as we can. Okay, well, now what about like pol- politically? Um, I mean, that, that this politically, twenty twenty was was just a disaster. And by by that, I mean the church letting the <laughs> the profound divisiveness among the political parties just just seep down into our soul as Christians. It's 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 yeah, it's insane. It's like, bizarre. are we going to recover from that or? <laughs> How, like, do you think now that, you know, Trump's gone, sort of, <laughs> it's not, the, the, the ghost of Trump still exists? I mean, is that yeah. is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it, Are we going to get beyond or is it going to keep getting worse? I mean, is in four years, are we going to experience this profound, like, divisiveness again? Or Well, the problem with, with Biden is that Biden's terrible, too. 
He's just terrible in different ways. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. Trump was terrible <laughs> in, in very explicit ways. And in contrast, Biden is like way nicer, but I think many of his policies are terrible. Well, nobody the voted for is- nobody voted for Biden. I mean, they voted against Trump, but nobody who voted for Biden. I mean, that's not <laughs> he could have been a yeah, hologram, so- and people would have voted for him. I mean, some say he is a hologram. Well, I mean, you know, growing up in Australia, it's still I still find myself in total disbelief in American politics. <laughs> you know, I think that the whole world kind of like just folds its hand and sort of watches the the American circus. It's very hard for people in America to understand how uh, people Mm -hmm. around the world perceive them. Um, But getting back to the church component, um, oh my gosh, the the compromise was just, if Jesus wrote an eighth letter to the American church, he would have spanked them on the political part. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would have just raged against them. That was like a horrific political idolatry. That was as great a political idolatry as any king in the Old Testament defying the covenant conditions and relying on a pagan nation to save them. I mean, it was just, wow. it was heartbreaking to me on both sides. On both sides. Um, yeah. It, it, we, I think the church found itself in a, in a, with weakened discipleship, with consumer Christianity, didn't have the antibodies to fight off the political virus, and it got, utterly infected and so people found themselves now look to be clear apart from eric metaxas who i've known for a long time yeah i don't know anybody personally i don't have any friends personally uh, which shows sort of like the the environment that i live in i'm in the northeast i'm in a very very liberal environment um who who was excited about trump right i don't know anybody who was like trump's our guy <laughs> i know a lot of people who were like worst case scenario and a lot of people who were like supreme court trumpers and court uh trumpers i know people who are trump for the economy i know people who are like trump is better than hillary um so i i don't know anybody who was like genuinely excited now i have friends in the south and other parts of the country and in the the pentecostal prophetic world who were like trump is king cyrus i struggled to take that seriously (laughs) but the compromise has been horrific and it will take possibly a decade to recover from it. In fact, it will have to be, you, you know how people who are alive right now don't really remember the moral majority. They know it as a cultural reference point, right. but it hasn't shaped, hasn't shaped their lives or hearts. We may need another generation whose lives and hearts are not shaped by this before we get our credibility back. Wow. Is that maybe 10 years? Yeah, probably 10 years. So you're talking both, would you say, you said both sides, both the Trump is our guy if you're not pro-trump you're not a christian all the way on the other extreme of the kind of anti-trump hysteria that if you're for trump then you're basically a part of the kkk and you know are voting for hitler and you know how how can you even call yourself human like both both of those extreme and and it's hard because i don't see a lot of middle ground there it's like (laughs) well yeah it's yeah no i agree and the, the part of the challenge was People were making false equivalencies. Yeah. There were so many false equivalencies and false framings of the issue. You know, so to compare America uh, and President Trump to Hitler and Germany is a false equivalency. Right. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but, but many people did. And so 
it was very, very – so people who were like in the middle trying to sort of navigate a third way were often accused of cowardice and not taking a stand. And there is many, many times yeah. when being a third way person was a, a failure of courage at an important moment. Um, you know, it's – and again, part of it was all lumped in. A lot of it was lumped in with the racial conversation mm-hmm. as well, you know, and Trace Trump – I don't know if Trump is a racist or not. I will say this. He agitated, and I do think consciously, racial tensions in the nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so oh, for yeah. people yeah. Yeah, so for people who were, you know, minorities or whatever, I mean that that touched them at a visceral mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, white Christians not pushing back on that mm-hmm. or commenting that or dismissing that, there was so much credibility lost right there. Yeah. Now again, you know, yeah. so it was it's it was a it was a total disaster. It was a an absolute um it was a scan of our idolatry and it was manifest so powerfully and uh, we I, I genuinely think we've a lot of repenting to do. We've blown so much credibility. God. I grieve over it. Yeah. Yeah. I I I think yeah. I don't know. I I had to delete all my news apps from my phone. I deleted all my social media from my phone. Um, like I just had to, cause I, I'm not even like, I'm like you, I'm, 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 I, I'm explicitly capital a, a political, um, not even nonpartisan because I don't even want to acknowledge those categories as legitimate ways of the kingdom of God. I, I am a, 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 I'm an ex I've been exiled to the land of America, which is my, which is my Babylon. Um, I seek the good of the city to the best of my ability, but it's within a completely different framework than the politics of the day. And so I, to me, it's, it's, you know, I look on to the partisanship and the polarization and the power, the power plays equally on both sides. And this is where, this is where I don't, you know, one, if you fall on one side or the other, whether they're pro Trump or anti Trump, I think you're just blinded by the fact that it's all one big power play and both Biden and Trump are largely um, creations, n- narrative creations of particular media outlets too. And, and I, I would, I would even say and that I, I might need to unpack that. No, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm not going to unpack that. Cause I, I don't, I'm still working through that, but um Oh, what was I going to say? I had something brilliant I was going to say. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, uh, tra- so, transcend. So yeah. as somebody who is is on neither side, if I was kind of, if, if you want to ask an exile, hey, can you give us some of your outsider perspective on what you see going on as somebody who's not invested on any other side out of principle? I would say I think the anti-Trumpers need to understand the, the, the what, like what led to Trump. Trump's yes. Trump's a byproduct. He's a symptom. He he's he's not it's not like people he he's not the foundation. He he's the symptom of something much much deeper. And I also think come on, like Trump is if you were going to capture America in one person, it is Donald Trump. He's arrogant. Yep. He's sexually immoral. Yep. Um he's he's after power. Yep. He's after money. Yep. He doesn't tell <laughs> the truth. That's the embodiment of America, left or right. Trump is you. <laughs> he is, uh, he is, and I think people who are very anti-Trump don't want to face the reality of that. That deep down, they are Trump. Yeah. Anyway, 
I hate even saying anything about politics publicly because people are so embroiled on both sides. It's like you're going to tick somebody off and make somebody happy and confuse everybody else. And But whatever. I, I don't know. I think – I read thoughts, Chris John? Wright's book. Chris Wright wrote a book called Here Are Your Gods. And yeah. it was recorded off a series of lectures he gave. And the second part of the book or the last part of the last couple of chapters are all on politics. Mm. And what on, on politics, it's basically to what standard in the Bible, Old and New Testament, does God hold leaders? And to what standards, Old and New Testament, does God hold nations? Mm. And I'm telling you, it was an absolute – it was like I read it and I was – I was like, gosh, this guy's so harsh. And Chris, Christopher Wright, you know, he's a scholar, he's a missiologist, normally has such a beautiful tone. And he was so prophetic and harsh on America as a nation. Wow. And he basically says America was founded on the violation of three of the Ten Commandments. And it's got arrogance and it's turned away from God. And so I'm so I affirm a lot of what you're saying. I'm a sympathizer though with movements that uh, uh, get America to repent movements. Okay. I'm a sympathizer for <laughs> shop at the national. I think that's, that's a good response to me. Um, sadly, though, it is often um, the, the most conservative people that are calling for that, the ones who are enmeshed, enmeshed with Trump. Mm. We, should re we should be repenting for our idolatry. Yeah. Not looking to human leaders as saviors in the midst of it. So I, I definitely agree. It has been tragic. I've lived in America 24 years now, you know, basically my entire adult life. And it's been tragic to mm. watch the decline of the United States as a nation in mm. many, many ways. And um, we've just got to stop putting our trust in America and put our trust in God. We have to be kingdom people. And we have to realize, hey, I love America, meaning I'm here by choice. Mm -hmm. there's, yeah. there's much about the values of the United States that I resonate with. Mm -hmm. um, it also has a, a complicated and complicit history that it, it whitewashes literally over many times and fails to take into account. And uh, so I have very little hope for the future of America. <laughs> I have very... I have a lot of hope for the kingdom of God in the world. That's so good. And you just look, look at look at where the church is thriving. Yeah. Church fastest place uh, the church is growing in the world is in Iran. Is it really? You know, so I think the yes, the myth we have taken into yeah. is that you have to have a Christian nation for Christianity to survive and thrive. Yeah. False. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I think our emphasis is off. Uh, I, you know, I'm a renewal junkie. I'm always looking for the redemptive side of things. So I do, you know, I'm always pushing for that. Um, but it's, you know, it certainly feels like I'm now we're at geopolitics, but it certainly feels like the future belongs to China. <laughs> really? Doesn't yeah. feel that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I mean, um, it's, it's too matter to unpack meaningfully, Yeah. but certainly the future will look different from the past and you you even mentioned it a little bit based on the printing press if you study the arc of nations the cultural advantages that they carry hmm. you know so in many parts it used to be um you know the central places of agriculture and plains and then the reason the british empire was so effective is because it dominated the seas so that access to shipping mm -hmm. and coastlines and um we're just not in a in a world anymore where geography is defining things. It's about tech. It's about online. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's about how culture is formed. It's, it's, it's shifting economies. So I think where those things are heading are, are going to radically reshape the power structures of the coming century. That's a good word, man. I mean, that's, it's, yeah. it's sobering. Um, and it's to say, to say you have little hope in America, but much hope in the kingdom of God, that, that <laughs> to use your own phrase from earlier, you know, that's not a controversial statement and yet it is right. I mean, that shouldn't at all be controversial, but gosh. So I guess that's my hope and prayer is that going through 2020, I hope that people see the bankruptcy, both personally, spiritually, culturally, the bankruptcy of partisan secular politics. And hopefully we can move beyond that. Hopefully we can do, I mean, come to see the beauty and, and, sober reality what you just said that our hope is in the kingdom of god and not just uh, what christians are going to say no they're going to agree but i mean practically do you do you live your life in agreement to that truth you know um yeah i mean i mean politics matters laws matters laws move horizons of possibility they have huge inputs i i i uh, there's, you know, I think the politics obviously obviously plays a definitive role in our lives. Look mm-hmm. at the last four years. The point I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is when the church derives its hope. I just preached this past week on Jeremiah 17. Mm-hmm. When it draws its strength, when its roots, when it looks for life and energy and nutrients and sustenance, when its roots draw water from politics and political right. leaders rather than God himself, right. Jeremiah says, you are cursed. <laughs> and the, the Hebrew language, he's referring to the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. It's covenant violation mm-hmm. to put your hope in anything other than God. So, you know, I just said to people, you know, you, you have way less agency than you know. The gift is you live in America, you get to vote for your political candidate. So vote to the best of your, to vote in the way that your conscience allows you, mm-hmm. or don't vote if your conscience allows you, and then spend the rest of your life seeking first radically the kingdom of God wherever you are, and using the almost unlimited agency you have in daily life to embody the teachings of Jesus and seek versus kingdom. And if that was a, an approach Christians had, I think our, our nation would look very, very different. If Christians were living the way of Jesus as salt and light in their daily lives rather than fending it off and projecting it onto leaders, you know, much of this was a giant excuse for our failures of our own discipleship. Easy to yell at Trump, hard to critique myself. Mm. Easy to advocate for Biden, you know, making, you know, repairing America rather than me doing the hard work of repairing relationships. So again, it's all, it's all, I want people to take responsibility for their own lives and to embody and seek first God's kingdom where they are. And I think so often this was all a distraction from us doing that. Pastor John Tyson, I think that's a good word to end on there. Uh, if people want to find more of your work, I, I, my audience, a lot of them not only know who you are, but love who you are. But for those who don't, um, you're a pastor out in New York City. You got uh, your sermons are on a podcast, you have the websites. What's the website? Yeah, if you just go if you just go to church.nyc, church. that's it. Okay. That's where all this church.nyc, that's where all this stuff is. Okay. 
and your books are all listed there and everything. I mean, you do a lot of writing. I don't think that. I don't think they are, man. <laughs> I don't know where any. You're They're so, on Amazon. You, you've written so much stuff that people aren't even aware because it's all like for your local church and stuff, and and uh, which is I think it's, I think it's awesome actually. It's 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 different than the typical yeah. American pastor, but um, it's fascinating. Yeah, you can the, the stuff I've written. I, my latest book. Um, I've got another one coming out soon in May. My one before this uh, was called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction and the Culture of Compromise. And the whole thing was about like trying not to get sucked into politics and radically, defiantly, explicitly following Jesus. Wow. So that, 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 that book's got some teeth to it that I, I hope sell people uh, in their discipleship. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks yeah. so much. Sweet. For, thanks so much for being on, man. We got to do this again before 2021 is over. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that'd be great. Cheers, mate.